you're accepted, but you're kind of like still that like that Auslander because you're not quite one of them. And then I would kind of intellectualize things so they're like, how's this guy? Where is he from? It definitely made you think of yourself in, in ways that you might not have because, you, you know, people are looking at you and you never never thought it was anything special or anything. But to some people, when they meet somebody that they say is going to Ivy League school, they're like, oh my gosh, you must be brilliant. An Army ROTC cadet in college, Pace Duckenfield, Dartmouth 96, knew he would have to make good on his service commitment sometime after law school, probably in the reserves. But the drive to do more and learn more led him to jump, literally, into active duty and a long military career. Find out how intelligence is one thing, but lifelong learning is another, on today's Roads Taken, with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. So I'm here with my friend Pace Duckenfield, who's probably seen more in his last 25 years than most of our classmates combined, and hopefully he'll share those stories with us. So welcome, Pace. Welcome. How are you doing, Leslie? So let's talk about, let's start this where I usually start with our guests and go back to you in college. Who were you then? And as we approached our graduation, who did you think you'd become? Okay, well, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., you know, coming to New Hampshire was um, very different, uh, having come from a major city, well, you know, an urban area. It wasn't totally alien because I'd had a brother, David, who was in class of 88, so I'd been up to Hanover, and I knew the, the beauty of the area, and I'd always kind of been an outdoors person, so I was looking forward to that. And then going to the school, I knew a few things. One, that I was going to be in the RTC program, because after my first year, I was on a scholarship for Army RTC. And also, I knew that I probably was going to major in something uh, social science related because although I wanted to go into some kind of um, biology, I didn't have like strong math and science background. So I knew it was going to be something along the lines of um, history or, or something like that. And once there and, and having um, gone through courses and everything else, toward the time I was graduating, uh, I, I was applying to law school. And I was also trying to figure out if I was going to go active duty military. So I knew that somewhere in my future, I was going to have a commitment to the military, whether active duty or reserve. And I knew that I was going to be going to law school. I thought that at that time, I was probably going to end up working in telecom regulatory because that was a big thing that started in 96. That's kind of where I was from the time I got there until the time I was about to leave. And did law school end up being the path? Well, um, I had been um, just applying to schools since that, I guess, early that fall or so. And I just applied to a lot of different schools. Ended up going to uh, University of Maryland. You told me that with the deregulation of the telecom industry around that time, you thought that you'd pursue that. And you did. You did some policy work um, and regulation stuff. But then you somehow got involved in adjudicating military clearances, ended up doing that for a while, which you told me kind of felt like Groundhog Day. Right. Yeah. So um, you decided you needed to or thought maybe you would have a better path if you went into active duty and... You had a mentor. Yes. Well, going back to that's just about 2002, and this is when I was at the Central Clearance Facility at Fort Meade, the place that adjudicated all the clearances. And then there was a, a Colonel O'Connell, and he was um, about to retire. And I respected him. He was a down-to-earth kind of person. When I actually spoke to him, I was telling him what I was thinking about doing. And at the time, um, believe it or not, there are adjudicator jobs at all the agencies, too, because every agency that has uh, individuals who have clearances, they like to have their own adjudicators, people adjudicating 
for people coming into their agency. I could have continued that work. He said, well, what do you really want to do? If does this interest you? He said, you know, if you go back to duty, it's not like there's, there's going to be um, great riches or anything in it. But uh, if you enjoy it, you know, you could have a career and retire and then go in to do some other things. Or you could just go in and get some experience and then go do some other things, things as well. So that's when I said, you know, I'm not going to just stick with the status quo and, and go the regular path. And that's really, I think, not so much going from reserve to active duty as reservists, but the real divergence in that Robert Frost type of path was deciding to go active duty because um, there were certain things I wasn't going to be able to control. Right. Particularly at that time. Yeah. Because what, right. when was this? Right. This was post um, 9-11. Yes. Yeah. Iraq was all on fire. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so how did your family take that? Well, um, my brothers, they're, they're, I have two older brothers. They're about seven and 10 years older than me. And both of them were, were kind of, they didn't say no, but they said, you know, I understand you really want to think things through, but you know, that that's a, a, a tough decision because you know that you're going to probably be deployed and you have all these things going on. And one thing I found out from recruiting is that a lot of times parents are very concerned about their children, and rightfully so, because ultimately there are situations where individuals are killed. So no one wants it to be their child. And, you know, and I can understand that, although they are grateful for individuals who do. Sure, of course. They were kind of like hesitant and I wasn't trying to push back against them. But I knew that I needed to do something because with the downturn in telecom and, and this was before the, uh, the bubble in 2007, but the economy was sort of starting to wane a little bit. I said, you know, I need to probably do something different, come back with um, a different skill set and then just see how things go. Yeah. And and so that you did. You decided to go to active duty and landed in Kuwait and Iraq just after shock and awe doing intelligence work. Yes. So you were basically in the green zone in one of Saddam's palaces, former palaces. And what was your day to day like, actually, in that period of time? What happens is you, you have um, different rooms there that they changed into meeting and briefing rooms and so forth. So we're in this room that um, would have been like a big ballroom, but they built like different stair levels. And each level was kind of like a, a different specialty. Like you would have your operations people, your S3, your S2, your intelligence people. You'd have individuals who would control aviation assets. And so everyone's in a room because they have to collaborate on everything that's going on. Um, because I was Intel, what I was focused on was like current operations. And we'd have like 10 to 12 hour shifts uh, where you'd, you'd be on duty. And basically you would just keep all the information going. And then at a shift change, you would have a brief to the incoming group. And I would often do the night shift. And so in the morning, I would brief a group called the IRMO, the Iraqi Reconstruction Management Organization. That group was made up of a lot of different people from uh, State Department entities that were helping to rebuild the government. And they would often have to go outside of the green zone, which was more dangerous. So I'd brief them on what was going on and they would go interact with the different um, ministries in Iraq to help build that government up. And I don't know if you'd have to shoot me afterwards, but are you allowed to tell me like how you're gaining the intelligence that you pass on to your colleagues? No, as long as I don't get into like, uh, you know, methods and surprisingly, most information, even from um, other entities, other countries, people gain most information from open sources because hmm. there are things you can just find out just by observing everyday life. So there wasn't really a lot of, I guess, secret squirrel stuff I had to do. 
it was more like just basic information that was going on. I wasn't helping with campaign plans, so to speak. I was really just kind of keeping daily operations information available and providing it to the uh, civilian Department of State officials so that they kind of knew and were aware of, of threats. And, and then individuals who were driving them around could kind of, okay, this is a hot spot. This is what we need to do. And also just give them an idea of what was going on, which would help them for their work. Yeah. So I remember this is a time when we had lots of personnel on the ground. Iraq is going heavy. We have Afghanistan, mm-hmm. too. Is this a period of time when deployments got longer? Like, how long were you out there? Well, in this one, because I had initially gone to Kuwait and that was my actual the base I was at Camp Air John. So basically, I was it was in short, it was a one year deployment. So at this time, I wasn't on the extended deployments, but I just went from one place in the theater to another place. And that's how I got to Iraq. But then at after about six months there, I went back to Kuwait because that's where I was deployed to. And I left from there. And my next assignment was going to Alaska, which uh, I'll tell you about in a little bit, where I had actually a longer deployment when we deployed from there. You are an intelligent office, intelligent. You are a very intelligent intelligence officer at that point. How does one kind of move or I can imagine not every day is Groundhog Day in this scenario at all. um, But when you're thinking about your own growth as a serviceman, but also as a person, what's the process for doing that? Now, this is this gets really interesting because essentially when you are um, commissioned, and you go on active duty. Generally, you go as a second lieutenant, you go to a school and you go through a basic course, and then you go to maybe a specialty, you go to another unit, you start your basic job. It's similar to if you were to start any kind of corporation, whether it's an advertising firm, a law firm, you start out as uh, a junior associate, or so you're like a rookie, and then you, you have some more experience, then you come up maybe a, a senior associate, and you work your way up. The military is similar to that, but it's much more subjective in in terms of your evaluations because each branch of the military has its own culture. And then with each specialty within the military, there's, it's a subculture. So I was an intelligence officer, which is a support officer. In short, the Army's platform, everything they support is to, is to support the infantryman, the soldier. So your support and everything else works around that. And if you're not combat arms, uh, artillery or armor, which are tanks, infantry, then to those individuals, you're kind of like important, but not one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the good thing is um, I didn't have a problem really fitting in and I had gone to airborne school. So I was a, a paratrooper. So I went to um, light units. When I say light, it was like just ground troops, no tanks and vehicles, mainly just, you know, rock marching, whatever. And because you are a paratrooper, you kind of fit in with them more. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of the background. I wasn't like a ranger and all these other things. So it's interesting. You, you, you're you accepted, but you're kind of like still that like that Auslander because you're not quite one of them. And then I would kind of intellectualize things. So they're like, how's this guy? Where is he from? He's fitting. And then they found out I went to Dartmouth. But it was, it was right. cool. But it definitely made you think of yourself in, in ways that you might not have because, you, you know, people are looking at you and you never, I mean, I never thought it was anything special or anything. But to some people, when they meet somebody that they say is going to Ivy League school, they're like, oh, my gosh, you must be brilliant. So and why did you find yourself in paratrooper school? When I was in ROTC, before your commissioning year, before your senior year, the summer of your junior year, you go to a camp called Advanced Camp. And all cadets, go, except for West Point, all the 
individuals that go to academies, they have their training at their academy. But every other officer goes to an advanced camp for six weeks. Now, everyone goes now to um, Fort Lewis, uh, Joint Base Lewis-McCord in, in Seattle, everyone in the country. But it used to be if your school was east of the Mississippi, you went to the camp mm-hmm. Fort Bragg. And as follow-on training, um, there's some schools and things you can go to. And a slot became available to go to Airborne School. After I went to the six weeks at Fort Bragg, I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, where the uh, Airborne School is. And I went to Airborne School for about three weeks. You go through different phases where you, you're doing some stuff to get in shape. And then you go through a, a tower where you're like learning how to propel and, and do a landing. And then you actually go to the aircraft and you make about uh, five jumps out of the uh, aircraft. How did this never come up senior year at CNG? Honestly, like, what did you do this summer? Um, I think I had an internship, but you were jumping out of airplanes. So you're one of them, but maybe not one of them. An interesting kind of psychological thing to and sociological thing to probably navigate. How does one go from military intelligence officer to ultimately mission manager and director of all kinds of things that I don't even understand on your resume. There's a funny running oxymoron about military intelligence. Some people say like military intelligence, that's like an oxymoron. And, and the reason people say that is people get this impression of intelligence, like these shows, CI or whatever it is, or those shows that came out after 9-11. No, that's at a strategic level. It's a very high level of intelligence. The most of the intelligence I did was at a tactical level. So like for a, a unit of, I don't know, 450 in a battalion, up to like a brigade or so, small groups. So you would do the, the tactical level kind of on the ground type stuff. So the way I ended up getting into the cyber realm was after I went to um, the unit in Alaska, the 425, which was an uh, airborne unit there, and I had just stood up. After I came back from, uh, that was my 15-month deployment there, and I went into recruiting. That was my next job. So I came to Washington, D.C., and I did recruiting. And then I went to a school at DIA called the National Intelligence University. And I wrote my thesis on cyber law. So here it's coming back. Full circle. And I was really interested in getting to that cyber because I had done telecom before. And I was just interested in these intricacies and the networks and so forth. And even after that, um, I didn't go directly into that. I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to 82nd Airborne Division. And I kept asking my branch manager when time came up to move to the next assignment, I want to go into cyber, I want to go into cyber. And finally, they said, okay, we'll send you to Fort Gordon. And that's where all the communication stuff is for the Army and the cyber the um, cyber branch headquarters is moving here. So that's in short how I got to um, – the NSA facility at Georgia, because after 9-11, they have several NSA um, satellites, and one of them is in Georgia. And that's how I, I got involved in that kind of work and still growing and, and growing into that field. Well, growing into that field, but really a leader in um, kind of training and, and bringing up new people into the field as well, right? Yeah, that's true. Yes. So after Fort Bragg is when I went to Fort Gordon to the first the Army Cybers Joint Headquarters. And then to the Army Cyber School where I am now. And not only have you been a student there, but you have now been an instructor and a leader there. Have you found that that role really suits you? I would imagine you're teaching the same thing over and over. So does that get kind of frustrating? I know that's a frustration of yours. Or do you find joy in that? 
Well, I, I find joy in it, but you know, it's interesting. I, I would say the story of my life has been that I find something new. I, I start to understand it and get into it. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Bloom's taxonomy. Mm-hmm. And I find myself being at that familiarization level and maybe get to a little bit of the understanding, but I, I tend to be around uh, individuals who are experts at things. And then I find myself catching up. And it's just the nature of where I've gone. So within this cyber realm, having no IT background, and actually I tried to become a cyber officer, but the cyber officers, the way the Army was doing it, they were looking at individuals, again, with um, STEM backgrounds. And so I tried to transfer into that branch, wasn't accepted to that branch, but yet I stayed at Fort Gordon, continued working there, and they needed people who had backgrounds in like operational army or tactical army. So I did a little instruction, but I did more management of the courses. And mm. But I've had a lot of opportunities in terms of pursuing my certifications. I didn't even know what certifications were. So now I have vouchers to take like, you know, CISP and project management, certified ethical hacker. So I'm learning... Ooh things that probably would have, would have not even touched upon. And yeah. after coming full circle, I kind of am looking at turning back into law because cyber law is an area that is sort of like telecom regulatory, like I was in. It was undefined. It was a lot of policies and things were not clearly defined. And so that's what I'm trying to move into now. But I probably will stay at the management level of IT as well. Okay. I have to think that you have more than made good on the years that you needed to put into the military, right? We're done with that. Could you retire at any time that you want now? Well, yes. My actual, the date that I thought was going to be the retirement date would be 1 March 2021 next year. So what happened? Is because I had uh, about seven years reserve time. They they have to, to calculate how much credit you get for those reserve years towards your active duty years. So at this, I see. have over nineteen years, and it will it may still be March of next year, but it won't be any later than September of twenty twenty one. It's it's going to be sometime in twenty twenty one that I will um you know say God willing the creek don't rise re- retire. So. Okay, so not just being eligible, you will retire. Yes. Yes. Okay. So when you're thinking about law, then cyber law, you're thinking as a civilian, not within the military. Right. Uh, At this point, whatever I do post-military, no, there are Department of the Army, Department of the Air Force uh, civilian jobs. They are GS, the government positions. And then another big uh, employer are the various contractors. Not only defense contractors, but technical type things. You might, I don't know if you've heard of SAIC, uh, Booz Allen. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. A lot of those places are in the D.C. area, too. And, they, and a lot of them have done technology. And because of the technology stuff, they're branching out to cyber or other areas, so north of Grumman, that kind of stuff. So it's exciting to think, you know, you actually have a point in the kind of near future that you you have this built-in pivot moment, right? That you yeah. get to decide what this next thing is going to be. I guess all these deployments or somebody else deciding, but now this is really going to be you saying, right. who do I want to be? Like, who yeah. is Hayes yeah. Duckenfield? And, yeah. and and how do you how do you envision that? How do you make a path for yourself to even get to the decision point. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, sort of like with yourself too, you're, you have to realize you're a lifelong learner. 
And so uh, one thing that I'm not afraid of is if you don't know exactly what skills you have, if you have to get additional skills, it doesn't mean that I necessarily have to go all the way to a terminal degree level. But I kind of would like to just because it's, it's, it's something that would be interesting. However, I realized in talking to people that you really want to have a passion for what you're doing. And, and if you go to that higher level and it's not bad at all to do that, but you just have to know that original work will put you in a place where you have to continue doing some of that. So at this point, I just want to enhance skill sets. I don't see myself purely doing um, legal work. I'm probably going to stay in the IT realm and just continue growing, doing certifications and so forth. And the next pivot is going to be whether I stay here or go back in the D.C. area. And I told myself, you know, all my you know colleagues were saying, you know, cost of living is so low here and everything. However, I have some friends in D.C. area and they're saying, like, look, there's so many different things in your skill set because of the greater diversity of things there are to do. Your skill set could be more in demand. So it seems like if the right things work out, I may be back in D.C. Yes. So I'm going to ask you um, to think back to that college age pace who had some responsibilities in front of him. He knew about also a big wide world that um, he wasn't quite sure about. What did you learn in the last 25 years that had you known a little bit of something, it might have eased away or, you know, what's that advice that you would look back at that guy and just say? You know, it's interesting because going to a school like Dartmouth or any school, um, you're thinking, wow, I'm in these uh, hollowed hallways and there's so much to learn from books and everything. And there is. And I think about uh, what Theodore Geisel's Geisel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the things you learn and all the places you go and everything like that. That's so true because what I would say the biggest takeaway is that even though you're going to a school and you're primarily focusing on higher levels of education, um, most things you learn in life, even as wonderful as books and knowledge and things are, are, are don't come from books. I learn more from all my experiences and particularly places I never thought I'd be like when I was in Iraq the second time on an advisor team and we're working with Iraqis and going around different places. And then you're like, OK, I'm getting shot at and there are rockets and people are, you know, are dying and so forth. And literally, you know, you don't know if you're going to make it. There are people that I met that I would never have come across from different all parts of the country. And you're so close to them because when you're deployed with them, they are your family. And I mean, I had individuals from all parts of the country and you have completely different backgrounds, people with completely different political philosophies and, it, and all that didn't matter because, you know, you had a gunner in your truck who was protecting you. You were protecting them. You're on the radio and you're moving around and you come back alive and uh, you have a bond with people and you might not talk to them for years, but you pick up the phone and it's like it was yesterday. So that, that's my biggest takeaways. We, you, we learn from each other and people and experiences more than we learn from books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pace, I want to thank you on behalf of our entire class for your service um, to our country and um, to the greater world. I just think what you've done has been great and inspiring. And I, I'm so excited for you to be able to chart your own path in this next phase. And I'm sure you're going to do something great that really gets you to, you know, to learn more and experience more. Thanks so much for being part of this conversation. Yeah, 
That was Pace Duckenfield, a cyber and intelligence leader for the U.S. military who is focused on guiding teams to provide critical data collection and analysis for tactical, operational, and strategic uses. With retirement from the service within sight, no doubt he has a wide range of options for his next chapter. And for anyone else interested in hearing another chapter in the stories that make up this podcast, please consider subscribing wherever you access your podcasts or go to roadstakenshow.com to find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on the next Roads Taken.